Welcome back to the 178th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including our new Speaker of the House has some surprises up his sleeve, a big win for the UAW, and how they're probably going to close out the next two other big automakers in order to finish up the strike, and a interesting article talking about an interest group that's trying to get specific cases in front of the Supreme Court. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So last week, two big headlines hit the news. One, the most conservative speaker of at least, I'm pretty sure of at least my lifetime, then again, Newt Gingrich was in there, so maybe not, but at least of the last 10 years was voted in, and the UAW is winning its strike. They have made a deal with Ford. They're probably now going to use that to pressure GM and Stellantis. So it seems like change is in the air. So what do you think the next change will be? What do you think all of this means? Maybe it means absolutely nothing. Maybe there's big changes coming down the pipe. Please tell me what you think. I'd love to hear everyone's opinion. All right, let's jump to our first article that comes from the American Conservative. Speaker of Surprises. So, yeah, obviously, if you haven't been paying attention, we have a new Speaker of the House. And I didn't talk about it on Friday as much because, well, to be honest, uh, I knew the hit pieces would be coming out. It would give me a little bit more material to talk about, a little bit more material to analyze. And also a few of the defenses have come out, which makes my job a little bit easier as well. So then I don't have to sit back and pretend like I know everything. And I can just, you know, steal other people's information and just report it or at least get it out to you. So this article, like I said, comes from the American Conservative. And it is a little bit more, considering it's the American Conservative, of a protection piece of Mike Johnson. And, you know, he's been a little bit out there on some of his beliefs, at least a little bit further to the right than the mainstream has become. So we'll see how uh, everybody likes him going forward. But based on small things, this article is defending his legacy and also kind of highlighting how this process has actually been a more interesting one than people would like to admit. So let's jump to our first quote that really asks, did Matt Gates win? Did Gates get what he wanted here? Someone argue yes, someone argue no. Let's let them argue their case in the American conservative. Quote, it was worth it. So, says Matt Gates of his move against Kevin McCarthy 22 days and four GOP nominees later, it is hard to dispute. McCarthy was not a conservative, nor did he have the pragmatic bona fides of an operator like Mitch McConnell, whose brainless and soulless personal views are at least balanced out by his ability to get things done. First off, that is a stab at both McCarthy and McConnell right there. I mean, they just drove the knife into McCarthy and said, basically, you're not a conservative, and even if you, uh, you know, had a little bit more conservative beliefs, you still couldn't act upon them. And then they're just outright saying, well, yeah, and even if you did have, uh, you know, the ability to do something, it still wouldn't be enough, because then they make the comparison to uh, McConnell, who they just say is really pragmatic and soulless and brainless. So, yeah, you could see that the American conservative is coming out swinging here, and they are not really going to stop. Quote, 
that McCarthy was ever elected Speaker of the House to begin with is a ringing indictment of the Republican Party's Washington establishment. That offense has been corrected now. McCarthy lost the gavel, and none of the worst-case scenarios materialized. No liberal Republican, no respectable moderate, no rabid warhawk or corporate crony managed to weasel his way into the job. The ostensibly unimpressive Patrick Mahenry, a McCarthy ally made Speaker pro tem uh, upon his ouster, did not get a chance to make his Hail Mary play. The long-shot possibility that a faction of dissatisfied Republicans would break off to elect a compromise candidate with Democrat, the Democrat minority came and went, barely a flash in the pan, end quote. So you can see they obviously, you know, the American conservative has some very, very strong opinions here, and they're right. At the end of the day, they actually got someone that is more conservative, especially socially conservative, and, uh, you know, we haven't necessarily seen all of his fiscal conservative policies, but he is a little bit more conservative there. He seems to be relatively principled, and I wonder if that will hinder him going into the job because, like they said, he doesn't have the pragmatic bona fides. You know, they kind of use that to take a, a shot at McCarthy, but they're also not pointing out the fact that Mike Johnson, he has been in there for a short amount of time. You know, I believe he's at his fourth term, if I'm not crazy. But even then, he hasn't been in there too long. He does have strong principles, strong conservative values, and that's great. But also, you do need an operator as Speaker of the House. You need someone that's willing to compromise with people in all factions of the party, the more moderates and the more conservative. And you also need someone who can work across the aisle and try to convince some Democrats to come their way if they can't get a vote. And I know you're saying, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, you know, conservative, really conservative, he's maybe going to take the party in a new direction. Sure, he can try to take the party in a new direction. Maybe they can really get some of those conservative points out there and they can really get them done. But I'm sorry, the Speaker of the House is not supposed to be the most conservative member of the House. I'm not saying he, Mike Johnson is the most conservative member of the House. What I'm implying is the statement is the Speaker cannot be the most conservative because he has to be the one negotiating. He has to be the one breaking his principles, or at least if he has any in the first place, but breaking his principles in order to get the job done. He is going to have to give up on his principles. Now, if he can do that, if he can say, I'm going to push for this, but at the end of the day, I'm going to acknowledge that I can't get this out of my you know, fellow caucus members, then that's fine. But if he's going to draw a hard, hard line and say it's my way or the highway and he piss off some of the more uh, moderate-leaning people, then it could be a problem for him. Because guess what they didn't get rid of? The, you remember how uh, they were talking, you know, Matt Gates. all it took was one person to get McCarthy out of there. They haven't gotten rid of that poison pill as far as I'm aware yet. So all it takes is one moderate who doesn't like his hardline stance, him standing up and believing in his principles and then trying to force those upon you know, members of his caucus, trying to get it into legislation. All it takes is one person who's going to be really upset at him, and then guess what? They're going to swallow that poison pill, and they're going to go through this exact same thing again. So you need to be a pragmatist. And you know some people argue that McCarthy was a pragmatist, and look where that got him. So if you can't even be as pragmatic as Mr. McCarthy was, then I, I don't know. I don't know how it's going to land for him. But, you know, there are detractors to Mike Johnson that this article wants to highlight, and I want to go into that because 
uh, at the end of the day, me just ranting about how the poison pill is still there and how he's not the right guy, or at least he may not be the right guy, it makes me one of those detractors. So let's talk about some of those other detractors. Quote, the staid new speaker has his detractors. The emerging narrative among left-wing activists is the so-called mainstream media is that Johnson is a proponent, an ally, or a sympathizer of Christian nationalism. As of this writing, fretful articles to that effect have already run in Time, Newsweek, Politico, MSNBC, Rolling Stone, Mother Jones, the Associated Press, and the list goes on. If nothing else, it is remarkable how quickly a propaganda network can get its ducks in a row. And yes, I 100% agree with that. Somehow they're all towing the exact same line at the exact same time. And they claim to be you know, reporters and journalists, not people that are playing for one side of the aisle or the other. And the same thing could go for Fox News, Newsmax, and all these other conservative ones. Somehow they just end up towing the exact same line all at the same time. It's a... Uh, it's interesting to say the least. Quote, def definitions may be important here. Insofar as Christian nationalism means the belief that the nation should be Christian, this is a bare minimum for sound politics. Insofar as it means a Christianized revision of the anti-universalism of er the early modern political theology, it is a philosophical question that even the Speaker of the House is not likely to drag from the online journals into the realm of actual statecraft. Far more likely is that opinion makers use the term simply to gesture at religious reaction, to raise a specter that looks vaguely like the Handmaid's Tale, but that contains neither a roadmap nor a substantive philosophy. I would be surprised to learn that Johnson is part of any revolutionary vanguard, end quote. And yeah, I'm, I'm not going to lie here. I uh, kind of agree with the, the author. I mean, at the end of the day, whether I think that he's going to be the best person to do the job as speaker you know, in the first place, I definitely don't think that he falls into that you know, crazy uh, category that they're trying to put him in. At the end of the day, he is a person with a strong, strong faith, a strong connection with God, and he's trying to put that out there. He's not hiding it. He's not trying to, you know, what's the word I would massage his beliefs in order to fit in in Washington. No, he has strong convictions. He's going to lead that way. And just because he is a person that is on the right and a Christian does not make him the term that they're using here, I don't like quoting it outside of it because it's just giving fire to the flames. It's kind of stupid, in my opinion. Now, is he a lot more socially conservative than a lot of people in probably because of his religious beliefs? Most definitely. There is no denying that. And some people in the Republican Party are even happy and delighted by that. So, I'm not trying to dismiss their claims outright and say, oh, no, no, he's he's a little too conservative. If you want to frame it that way, sure. But the framing of him being a Christian nationalist and then, you know, trying to doom and gloom this whole thing, come on, get out of here that, with that BS. Is he actually that far off from the mainstream populace of Republican voters, if not of the American public? I'm pretty sure even though, you know, church attendance has been on the, uh, has kind of ebbed recently, we still see a large majority of the population that says they're Christian, if not a larger percent that says they're spiritual to some degree. So to pretend like he is that far outside of the realm of the normal person 
is, uh, you know, it's a little bit silly. Now, it's maybe on some of his gay marriage stances, yes, he is outside the norm. But when it comes to just how he presents himself, he's a little bit more devout than the average guy. There's no doubt about that. But that doesn't mean that the core tenets of the religion of Christianity are not held by a lot of people, considering our entire society here in America was founded on it. And as much as people try, it is still taught and it is still talked about by a whole bunch of families and average day Joes who still attend church, or if they don't attend church in person, they at least watch a sermon every once in a while. And even if they don't go to church, they may read the Bible as some sort of uh, mechanism to be closer to God, or even just in an intellectual aspect and uh, appreciate some of the lessons that it may hold. So I think that there's the left media sphere and, you know, the left in general is kind of detached because not all of them care about Christianity as much. It's not fair to everybody. There are lots of Democrats who are still Catholics. I mean, Joe Biden, still a Catholic. There are lots of Democrats who are still Christian. So even on that side of the aisle, I mean, it's not that far off from a lot of people's beliefs, at least in God and Jesus. So I think that some of this stuff is just a little bit disingenuous from his detractors. I think they would have a much more salient argument if they looked at what he has done in the past and if he's going to have the experience to be House Speaker. Because now it just seems like they're trying to attack him for what he is, not what he's going to do or what he could do. And that would be much more substantive, and it could maybe actually could start an important conversation. But no, it has to be attack dog ads. It has to be setting the ground for, ah, this is the most right wing of the speakers in a long time, and we need to get him out of there in the next election. Yeah, you know how politics works. And, you know, I don't blame them. It's it's part of their job. They, they work in tandem. They report on the news. They try to build the headlines. They try to actually create narratives so that they can sell more papers, they can get more clicks. But it just it feels disingenuous, and it makes me feel a little icky when I, you know, when I read it, in my opinion. So our second article comes from the American Prospect. We're shifting from the speaker to the, the headline reads, quote, the UAW's amazing win. So, yes, if you didn't hear, UAW got a, or at least the leadership, got a good deal with Ford, and it's being proposed to the members of the union in order to vote on, I believe. By the time this has come out, they would have already voted on it, you know, but that's, it may be a little bit later Monday. I'm pretty sure it was over the weekend, though. But that, that's not important. Let's jump to what the win actually is. Quote, the UAW's stunning victory with Ford, which will soon translate into similar terms as the other two large automakers settle, it is not only a win for union's audacious new leadership, Sean Fain. It's a win for union democracy. Fain is already the first union leader maybe since Walter Ruther or Jimmy Hoffa, whose name is a household word. He demonstrates both how a great union leader gives a rousing speech to the rally and the rank and file and devises astute tactics to outplay management and build worker solidarity. This win will further energize a labor movement already on the upswing. And I mean, underneath President Joe Biden, we have seen a labor upswing. We saw uh, train workers trying to have a strike, even though Biden did Shut that down. There's no about, doubt about that. We've seen the SAG after strikes. We saw the writer strikes. We've seen health care strikes now. So obviously unions are they're feeling energized. And when you have someone who he has been described as a militant or 
if you don't want to use that phrasing, if you have someone who is as strategical as, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Man of the people. That's actually a few words, but still. Man of the people as Sean Fain. One person who really, really believes that everything should be back in the hands of the rank and file, empowering the members more in one of their first Democratic elections in a long time at the UAW. When you have someone like him who can be a figurehead or a spokesperson or the talking head of the movement and is not just going out there and doing talking points but actually succeeding and actually moving forward with strong changes in this industry that he's representing these members, uh, union members in, it does speak to the fact that there's, there's change in the air. And whether that's because of Joe Biden and the way that things have been going, or that will be caused by these UAW strikes and a person like Fain, I think, honestly, to be honest with you, it's a little bit more of a symptom rather than a cause, which is the rank-and-file members of unions have been tired that nothing is happening, and they put someone in like Sean Fain after the old structure of the UAW was kind of dissolved a little bit. It was a little bit less democratic, and it's not a cause. It's not like, oh, well, because Sean Fain's the leader now, things are going to go in a different path. He's a symptom of the change, but also he is now a catalyst of more change because he not only got in because the members were sick, but also he got in and he was effective because there was probably a fear that, oh, well, the union members, they're going to elect somebody and he's not actually going to be effective. He's not going to get things done. We should just leave it to the leadership. And this proves that wrong, that someone that you know is elected directly by the members can be just as effective, if not more effective, than the previous leadership. Do I agree with everything that the union is fighting for? No. Some of the stuff they propose was a little bit crazy. Do I always believe that unions are the best way forward? No. Sometimes I really don't like when I see certain places getting unionized because I don't want to pay extra prices. But also, there have been lots of arguments made, and I've become more sympathetic to them, which a lot of these people work really hard hours, and also they kind of fuel the economy that we currently live in. If you think about UPS and if the UPS strikers really got you know the the best deal in the world, and they're suddenly instead of getting paid, I believe the highest uh, people that were getting paid after the strike were somewhere around a hundred thousand dollars a year. Imagine somehow they got paid a hundred and fifty thousand, two hundred thousand dollars a year, and that was uh, not just the upper tier, but it was actually the top fifty percent. And then our package costs through UPS went up a whole bunch. You know, that is annoying, no doubt. But also, some counter-arguments would be along the lines of, well, yeah, but they're still doing a great service. They're still getting that package to you very, very quickly. They're still adding enough value that that should be worth it, in theory. And if it's not, then you don't have to buy it. I I have become more sympathetic to those sort of arguments because these people really do fuel certain parts of the economy, such as shipping or which in America, car manufacturing is a large industry. It's a large domestic industry. And yeah, these people do work hard. Now, like I said, some of the proposals, especially the uh, shorter work week with the same amount, if not more pay, that, that one was absolutely crazy. But it seems like they've come to a middle ground solution. And if it works for Ford and the union, even though I don't agree with the union completely wielding a club against Ford and these other car companies. If Ford can live with it and the union can live with it, hey, great. Yeah, that is your prerogative. It is your battle. And obviously, the UAW is doing something right in the eyes of its members. If it has stuck through this long, 
and they are willing to really set aside their take-home pay that they would be getting from Ford. They're getting some relief out of the strike fund. And I want to at least acknowledge that this is a huge, huge change point. Even if I don't agree with everything that goes on, this is a huge change in the way that these battles are being perceived. There's more union sentiment, especially with a big win like this. The writers also came to a deal. Maybe we'll see the actors or SAG-AFTRA also come to a deal here soon. And maybe, just maybe, this will inspire the next generation of people who want to get involved in these sort of grassroots union organizing because they see this and they say, I remember seeing Sean Fain on my mama and daddy's TV when they were striking at Ford. And you know what? He was a noble man. He was doing his thing. And I, he, I want to have a change. I want to help the workers just like he did. Honestly, I think that's a very inspirational. And I'm not going to ascribe Fain as, oh, well, he is the news, the second coming of the union leaders. No, I'm not, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is there, there's change here that could be not just temporary and now, but also it could be generational. So let's go to the little bit of uh, description of the previous way that the UAW worked and how things have changed a little bit underneath Fane since I was talking about the history a little bit. Quote, previously the UAW establishment known as the Administrative Caucus had always kept control. Its ability to trade favors with local leaders meant that the union establishment could always pick the president. The Administration Caucus was the successor to what was once called the Rucker Caucus, but became increasingly corrupt with time. The new Ford contract, which still has to be ratified by the membership, ends the long era of concession bargaining. Its main feature includes a 25% increase over four and a half years, plus a COLA, profit sharing, and ratification bonus. The two-tier system would be ended. A worker's starting wage would increase by 68% to more than $28 an hour. Interestingly, some of the terms offered by the other two automakers are better than those in the Ford contract. GM, for instance, has offered the union organizing rights at battery and EV plants under the master contract. The right to strike over plant closing is also on the table at all three companies. End quote. So you obviously had a little bit of centralized control with that previous administration caucus, and now you're seeing a little bit of decentralized, more member control present in this new UAW leadership. Let's hope they don't become too concentrated like the last one. We'll see. Fain seems like a pretty staunch guy, a pretty strong-willed guy. We'll see how long he sticks around for the union and how long he keeps getting voted in. But also what I thought was interesting is that last line, that they really did make big changes or at least get some concession when it comes to the future of the automaking industry as well. They will have the ability to strike at any of the EV and battery production plans, which is the future of cars, whether people like it or not. And let's be clear, I don't always like it, especially with the heavy-handed intervention of the government in this industry. But it's becoming the future, whether we like it or not. Maybe things will change under a different administration. But these companies are also seeing the market opportunity there. And they've already put a lot of money into it. So if they fall into the sunk cost fallacy, they're definitely going to pursue it at this point. And you see Fain making a big, big you know, jab at these companies to say, hey, we want to be involved in this EV process. We want to be able to have union workers at these battery plants, even though a lot of these plants are being opened up in southern states that uh, don't necessarily have to be unionized. And some of them don't want to be unionized because they're right-to-work states. 
but any of these locations that have a union there, they have the right to strike there, which you know could be vital to negotiating in the future because you don't want to negotiate now and then remove all of your leverage because, oh, well, we didn't fight for the presence and the ability to strike at these EV plants, and since they're the future of the industry, we actually don't have any power at those new plants after the old ones are getting shut down. So it looks like Fane came away with an okay victory here. Some you know, rank-and-file members may not be 100% okay with it. They're probably going to take it, though, because he's a good spokesperson, and he was working his butt off, no doubt about that. All right, so with all that one done, let's jump to our next article that comes from The Guardian. Get the right cases to the Supreme Court inside Charles Cooch's network. So, yes, if you... If you know the Cooches, and I'm pretty sure I'm mispronouncing that, but I really don't care. The Cooches, K-O-C-H's, they used to be some brothers that had a lot of political influence. Uh, unfortunately, uh, David died in 2019, but Charles is still around, and he's still you know, influencing where things go. His interest group is trying to get certain cases in front of the Supreme Court. He still lobbies in Congress and everything like that. And there's a, this article, you know, I wouldn't call it a hit beast, but it's definitely trying to call him out, trying to make sure that people are aware of what he's doing, where he's doing, and how he is going about it. So let's jump to our first quote here. Quote, the Cooch Network, a web of right-wing groups cultivated by billionaire businessman Charles Cooch and his late brother David, is spearheading the attack on federal agencies and government regulations that dominates the U.S. Supreme Court's agenda this term. The network has been working behind the scenes to bring cases before the court that, if successful, could undermine many of the core functionings of the U.S. government. At least two of the biggest cases to be considered by the justices this term have been spurred by groups bankrolled and coordinated with the Cooch universe, end quote. So this is, uh, you know, this is Cooch doing his thing. He is trying to make sure that at the end of the day, all these regulations that affect some of his business interests are, you know, brought down a little bit, trying to limit the administrative state. And, you know, I'm not going to lie, I, I kind of like the idea behind that. If it's protections for certain portions of the population or certain small businesses, you know, more of those type of protections, I'm not cool with him you know, running away and actually limiting the regulation and administrative state. But if it comes to cutting bloat in those areas, if it's a comes to getting rid of unnecessary regulations that unfairly burden companies, then yeah, I'm, I'm down. Just because, one, I think we need to readdress how we do this. Honestly, I think we need a little bit of a reset. Anything that is on the books that doesn't directly apply to today's world needs to be taken off the books and not left there, first off, because we have a problem with putting in regulations that are just left there, and they become so obscure and unused until there's an opportunity for the government to step in and say, oh, well, actually, in this specific case with this specific regulation that was passed during the 1900s, maybe we could justify, when because a lot of these regulation agencies or these administrative agencies have their own sort of internal uh, legal process or adjudication process so that they can you know, fast track some of these cases and then get them into appellate courts or into federal courts and things like that. And having all these old regulations of the book that aren't exactly applying here but can be kind of twisted, 
I think that that's going to come back to bite business owners in the butt because they may not know all of these you know, in the most detail. If it was passed in 1900, maybe they think it doesn't apply to their current situation. So having a reset where you kind of trim the fat there, I think would be uh, one first step into solving a lot of our administrative bloat problems and then you know, limiting the amount of power that they can have through executive order. And now, let's be clear, a lot of them are passed by Congress, but they kind of just leave the prerogative open. Ah, you will have this wide, wide breadth of things that you should cover, and it is up to your discretion how you will actually go about uh, implementing those rules to best serve the people, blah, 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 self-righteous, bullshit, BS. So maybe actually reigning in the power of some of these administrative agencies, actually defining them more rigidly, would be a good thing. Now, does that mean that Cooch influencing where these cases or what cases get up there and using his money to do it? No, I don't 100% agree with that because it's going to be, and let's be clear, it's not even just the money because, yes, I, I don't like the money in it either, but if it was money from a whole bunch of different groups, if there were lots of interests being played out here, then maybe you could look at it differently. But I can't look at it any differently because Cooch is pushing his agenda. At the end of the day, he's pushing things that will help his business alone. And yes, he should have a voice. He has a company within the United States that brings jobs and employment into the great U.S. economy. That doesn't necessarily mean that he should be able to advocate solely for his own benefit. And yes, he could argue that it will be for people in his company's benefit. It will be for other people's benefit around the industry as a whole. I'm not denying that. But when you can directly funnel money into which cases get where and which ones will have, you can basically select from five and say, well, you know, all five of these are important to uh, deregulation. But this one specific one, we should try to get that elevated because it will help me the most. That's where I have a little bit of an issue with it. I don't want to explore the moral or ethical parts of it, mainly because I'm too stupid to, to explain it in a really good way, but also because I want to get to our daily delight. And this one comes from News 18. This cat discovered it has ears while looking in the mirror. So obviously, anyone who has a cat, they look at the mirror sometimes. They're like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. What is this dude, guy? What is this cat doing in my house? This one is a little bit of a different story. Quote, the video is titled, quote, Cat discovers its ears in the mirror. It commences with a cat positioned on a bed, and the feline proceeds to approach a mirror placed on the opposite side of the bed. Initially, the reflection captures its ears, but the cat soon rises to gain a closer look at himself in the mirror. End quote. And the thing about it is, this cat is not just any normal cat, or at least that's what the commenters think. They're thinking this cat is a genius. Quote, a user wrote, I don't think people realize how crazy this is. Very few animals, cats included, know that they are what they are when looking at a reflection. But this cat takes it a step further. This cat instantly knew it was looking at itself. Then it actually used the mirror as a tool to look at its ears. Only dolphins are the creatures that have this sort of instinct. End quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos from this article or you want to read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button where you can find all of them. Also down there, there's a link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, as well as Podvine and the Twitter handle at your daily flip where I release a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday. Tomorrow we're talking about innovation and how it's changed, but 
you know, it's from the physical world to the digital world, a little bit more exploration there. Don't want to give it all away, but go check that out. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.